0: Says for I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and for those in Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, and attaining to all the riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. For though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in the spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as you've been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world and not according to Christ. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. Father, we bow our hearts, our soul, our mind, our spirit before you in this moment. We want to continue to worship As we now open up the word of God as an act of worship, we pray that our hearts would be submitted to what the voice of your spirit would want to say to us through the Holy Scriptures. We thank you for giving us the word of God, for inspiring it by your spirit, making it alive and powerful. And we pray that this morning our hearts could be that good and fertile soil. Plant the seed of your word deep into our heart, Lord, and may it bring forth great spiritual fruit as the result of what we've heard you say to us. Lord, we ask, take away every distraction, every high thing that would exalt itself against the knowledge of you. And we ask now that you'd bless your word and speak to us by the power and the person of your spirit's ministry alone. And we ask that believing such in Jesus' name and everyone said, amen, amen. You may be seated. Now, do you feel like that what you have in your life right now would be sufficient? In other words, as you'd evaluate your life and your personal experience, is there that sense within you that says, you know, It's enough, and what I have is sufficient, and I feel sufficiently equipped, and if somehow what I have is all that I ever have, that that is simply enough. Well, I want you to know that today's passage, as we go through it together, is actually going to address the answer to that subject regarding what is sufficient in our lives, what makes us complete as a person, and it reveals to us that sufficiency for life can be found in a relationship and in an experience with Jesus Christ. That is truly where sufficiency for life comes from. If you draw your attention with me back to verse 1 where we begin as Paul's speaking here, continuing what he already said from the first chapter, he then goes on to say to the Colossian believers, verse 1 of chapter 2, I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and for those who are in Laodicea and for as many who have not seen my face in the flesh." So Paul here is an expression of his love, wanted these believers to be aware that he was wrestling within for them as well as for those who were Christians in the city of Laodicea. And again, these were believers who Paul had not been able to, as we can see, minister to directly. He had not been able to be there with them personally, present with them, but yet he had a concern for them. We talked about when we began the book of Colossians together, this letter to the church of Colossae, that this particular church, it seems very clearly historically, and from what Paul writes even in it, was not a church that Paul himself had directly planted or established by his direct ministry there. Rather, it seems that the church of Colossae as well as the church of Laodicea, which is referenced in verse one, were actually perhaps offshoots of Paul's ministry in Ephesus. And as Paul was ministering in Ephesus, the Bible tells us in the book of Acts that the word of the Lord went all throughout the area of Asia Minor, and it's very likely that what happened is Paul preached the gospel and established the church in Ephesus, and then it says he taught the people there for a few years the word of God, that men no doubt went into other surrounding regions preaching the gospel other churches were established and planted as sort of a ripple effect of that initial ministry there in Ephesus Uh, and thus Paul's never met these believers in Colossae personally he's never taught them directly he's never been in it seems the area of Laodicea at this point where there was another church but that didn't minimize Paul's love and his great concern for these believers He still had a burden for them. He was very interested in their spiritual welfare. He didn't want them to be misled by false teaching. But as we can see, he's been talking about he wants them to mature in Christ. And he has a concern for them, a a deep burden within that he's struggling through uh, because he wants them to know all that's available for them in Christ. And he references here in verse one, the struggle that he was wrestling with. He says, I want you to know or be aware how great a conflict I have for you. That word conflict that Paul uses there in the original language is where we get our English word agony. And it speaks of struggling through something, wrestling through something, agonizing over it. And I think it's a reference to how Paul's love for these believers calls him to wrestle or to agonize within regarding concern for them. He agonized over them and their spiritual welfare because he wanted to see them assisted spiritually. Currently, remember, as Paul writes this, he's in prison. So he's he's rather limited to what he is able to do. He's in prison, incarcerated at the time for preaching the gospel. So he's separated circumstantially he cannot be present with them though he would love to be present with them to help them spiritually to assist them and to minister to them he's unable to do that and that made Paul feel conflicted within carrying this burden of concern because he's limited by his access I think as he says here I want you to know what great conflict as I'm wrestling and agonizing probably what Paul was wrestling and agonizing through was intercessory prayer for them because how much more can you do when you're separated geographically. Now, certainly we see Paul here wrote a letter to them as well to provide some spiritual guidance to them. But I think in some ways we can relate to Paul's situation. Perhaps there are people in your life that you love and care for, maybe your own children, if you're a, a parent or you know relatives or just other believers. You know, I think of the, the church that we pastored for 13 years before we came here. And to this day still, I can't be physically there present with them, but my burden for them has not left them spiritually. Uh, now I have to minister to them in a sense in a disconnected way by praying for them and and asking God to continue to work and and there is that experience at times where we're concerned regarding the spiritual welfare of those we can't be there present with but yet our heart is burdened for them and all we can do is maybe pray or from a distance do what things we can to assist them as Paul writes this letter to help these believers and he tells us going on in verse 2 what his desire was for this local church family he says this is what I'm concerned about Uh, he says that their hearts may be encouraged verse two being knit together in love and attaining to all the riches of the full assurance of understanding to the knowledge of the mystery of god both of the father and of christ and regarding jesus he then says verse three in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge so here we find a few important things that matter to paul in regards to seeing this local congregation in Colossae, as well as the one in Laodicea nearby, where this letter was probably shared and read as well, that would help them to develop spiritually. The first thing Paul mentions in verse two, if you draw your attention to it, is Paul desired, he says, that their hearts would be encouraged now, whenever the Bible uses the term heart, it's not referring typically to the physical organ in the flesh that keeps our blood pumping around. It's a reference biblically to the inward life, to the control center, to the seat of of human reason, the the inner man, we might say, where all of our desire and our thoughts and our reasoning and our feelings and everything about us uh, sort of originates from. Proverbs 4 tells us to keep our hearts with all diligence, for from it flow the issues of life. It's It's like the wellspring of everything about who we are, our heart, the inward person. It's the place of our conscience and our will where our choices originate. It's the part of us that directs us and drives us and so therefore the condition of our heart is critical because the condition of our heart influences and controls our attitude our words and our actions and the bible speaks in the book of hebrews of how we even as christians it says can become weary and discouraged in our souls and in our hearts that we can be subject to inner discouragement in the inward man. Things that we face and endure, maybe, or things that we don't see happening that we like to see happening. Sometimes these things translate into discouragement in our hearts. And if that were enough, I mean, let's just be honest, the world is hard. And just living in the world day in and day out, it really beats people up. And it wears people down and it it has a way to just sort of defeat the human spirit. And so inward discouragement and spiritual discouragement, it can really paralyze a person. It can almost even begin to misguide a person. We saw that on Wednesday nights in our study in 1 Samuel, how David, because of discouragement for 16 months, just sort of took a detour on God's plan for his life. And so much of it originated just from being so discouraged in his own heart and letting discouragement sort of just get the best of him. Well, Paul desired that these believers hearts, he says here, would be encouraged that through the ministry of God's word and God's spirit, directing people to Jesus, reminding people of who Jesus is, reminding people of what Jesus has done for them, reminding people that what Jesus is, can do for them and how he can help them his heart was that this would restore courage to the downtrodden that it would lift the head of those believers who were sort of looking down and it would renew the strength of the people of God he wanted their inward life to be built up and that believers wouldn't lose heart And they wouldn't lose heart in doing good or be weary in that. And and let me just say, boy, I appreciate that that mattered to Paul, that the hearts of these believers would be encouraged. Because I think a healthy church and any spirit-led ministry should be something that encourages the hearts of people. That people should leave built up. People should leave encouraged. They shouldn't leave deflated and, uh, you know, just utterly discouraged or condemned or more guilt ridden. I mean, some people, their concept of, man, that, that was a really great uh, church service. Boy, I feel horrible. I mean, I mean, listen, I understand the conviction of the Spirit. <laughs> and the conviction of God's Spirit should cause us to have a measure of, yes, what I'm doing is wrong. But it also should bring with it together an encouragement of, I want to start doing what's right this week. And, and and we should leave encouraged by the presence of the Lord. The Bible says times of refreshing come from the presence of the Lord. And this is what Paul wanted to see happen here, that people would be encouraged within as they're reminded what Jesus can do for them, as they're renewed with courage to live for the Lord again, because the world's a battleground, man. And the world is discouraging, have you noticed? Everything that's good morally. The world discourages everything. Everything that you want to believe in spiritually and what is right biblically and ethically. So, boy, let us seek to function in a way as the body of Christ, as a local church, where our heart is, is that we want to see people encouraged spiritually, encouraged to want to serve the Lord, encouraged to want to live for the Lord and stand for the Lord, that people would be infused by the Holy Spirit's ministry among us with fresh encouragement to love Jesus with renewed desire to want to live for the Lord and to realize that in the end we win we don't lose that we actually in the end end up victorious with the Lord so Paul said I pray that the hearts of people would be encouraged and secondly he also wanted to see as well verse two that the believers would be knit together he says in love and it's a beautiful word picture there you know, the, the, the idea there of knitting is the, you know, the intertwining of various threads that are all joined together to make one thing. And this is the picture there that God is giving to us of a close and a tight bond of unity among believers, among the family of God, that we would be knit together, directed by God's love being, listen, the common thread that knits us all together. That the common thread that knits us all together and knits our lives together is our experience with Christ and the love of God. Because the Bible tells us the spirit of God has already, when we came to Jesus, joined our lives together. Uh, again, remember that, that statement, you know, you, you can pick your friends, but you're stuck with your family. Well, well that's true spiritually just god knits us together and joins us together when we come to christ and we choose to follow him we the bible says we are baptized or or immersed into the body of christ now we all have the same father and we all have the same lord it's jesus and we are brothers and sisters in christ and we are supposed to live interconnected and interdependent on one another We're supposed to function in a way that's cooperative in a shared life experience. That being said, it is our responsibility, the Bible says, to maintain the unity of the Spirit. That is, it's our responsibility as Christians, as we interact with one another and obey the Lord, to facilitate that connection, to continue to seek to be knit together in love, that the love of Jesus would cause us to live our lives in a way whereby we're bonded together we're closely knit, that there's a shared experience of our lives bearing one another's burdens to a degree. Listen, being involved in each other's lives. That's how it's supposed to be experienced because of the power of God's love and our experience in Christ. There should be strong ties among the people of God. Listen, I, I don't want the world to ever outdo me in the church with camaraderie and companionship and commitment to one another and the willingness to live together and be there for one another. I don't want the world or anything else to have deeper connections than the connections that exist among the church family we're supposed to be knit together in love paul prayed that for this church i pray says that you'd be encouraged i want to see you being knit together in love and as well we see thirdly that he wanted as well for them to come to a full assurance of the understanding of all that's available to them in jesus that's what he's describing in the end of verse two and into verse three He says there that you might attain to the riches of that full assurance of understanding to the knowledge of the mystery of God. We talked about that last week, Christ in you, both of the Father and of Christ, he says, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. One translation renders that attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of you understanding resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery which is Christ himself. Now again, as we talked about before, Paul's writing a lot of these things because of the false teaching of Gnosticism that was sort of trying to influence the church in that day there in Colossae. And as I said before, the Gnostic system was trying to convince people that there was this higher knowledge, uh, that there was this deeper level of spirituality and spiritual living, but it was only possible if their system was followed. So if you followed their particular religious system of deeper spirituality, they were the, the, the true spiritual system all against all other spiritual systems. They kind of represented themselves in that way as they sought to draw people away. And in order to come into a true spiritual understanding and these lofty mysteries of spirituality, you had to follow their spiritual leaders in order to be brought into these things, uh, to have these deep secrets of spirituality. And Paul here in verse two and three is refuting that. He's saying, listen, that's, that's nonsense. He's saying God wills, he just said it last week in chapter one, God wills that all people know the mystery which is his son Jesus Christ being able to be in your life. And he says, listen, God doesn't want the spiritual life to be these deep hidden secrets that only certain high-ranking people in a spiritual hierarchy, they're the only ones that get it. And so they hold the keys to the mysteries and and only as you follow them or look to them, they can unlock for you the the realities of spiritual life, some system of religion. Paul says, no, no, true spiritual knowledge is not locked away with some high-ranking religious official and some mysterious secret that only a spiritual leader has the keys to and can unlock for us. He says spiritual understanding can be arrived at by anybody. By anybody. He says because the Father wills that we would all have a full understanding of the knowledge of the mystery of God, which is what? Christ in us. That Jesus Christ wants to come in our life and by his spiritual presence dwell within us and illuminate us internally so that we can see everything that God wants us to see spiritually in the same way that any other person would be able to understand it. And wanting us to see the sufficiency of Christ to provide spiritual understanding, Paul says in verse 3, look at it, regarding Jesus, he says, regarding Jesus in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge that is contained within Jesus Himself, He's saying is all we need for spiritual knowledge. In Jesus, in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, is everything necessary for wisdom and understanding spiritually. He says it's hidden in Christ. That word hidden means something that's concealed but can be discovered if you seek for it because it will be given by revelation. And that revelation comes from the person of Jesus himself. It's not as if Jesus is into some exclusive idea. of Well, I mean, you know, only certain club can know certain things. And I mean, I mean until you get to this rank of spirituality or, or, you know, then you can see the deeper. No, Jesus says, listen, I don't care if you're an eight year old child. I don't care if you're 18 years old or if you're 85. Jesus says, I-, I want everyone to know. The Spirit of God, the same Spirit of God that dwells in in Billy Graham or or in, in, in anyone, the same Holy Spirit reveals these things to all of us. We can commend this understanding and as we seek and pursue Jesus in Him, in a person Himself, in the person of Jesus Christ, is where we find all the treasures of spiritual knowledge. Everything that we could long to discover as we seek and pursue Him, we discover treasures from Jesus because guess what Jesus opens up those things to us he unveils those things to us he's the one who knows all things and reveals all things and how great is you pursue the Lord that he gives these wonderful at times does he not insight spiritually and as you can just sit alone with Jesus and read your Bible and as you're reading the word of God the Lord just illuminates something and you go wow Lord that's incredible and it's just the Lord illuminating and in him he's unveiling and revealing things. The, the wisdom that you need for life or how to live for God, he just gives these glorious understandings to us as we continue to seek him. Deeper knowledge and wisdom for life generally or the spiritual life, it's not found, listen, it's not found in some system. It's not found in some path. It's not found in you know in some book that you've never discovered yet, and then and, and, and that's that. Well, if you get this particular religious book, that will unlock the keys to the mysteries of. No thanks. The Bible unlocks the keys to the mysteries of Jesus, and Jesus helps us to understand these things. What a glorious thing to realize that the Lord is the doorway to wisdom. Jesus is the key to unlocking spiritual knowledge. In him, it says, are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He's sufficient to give us everything we need. And I just say that because sometimes, even as, as God's people, we can sort of start going down these rabbit trails. Oh, well, this new system or this new thing that's going on, that's the key to get more spiritual. Can I encourage you? You don't have to chase that. Seek Christ. You seek Jesus You seek the Lord and he will reveal to you what you need when you need it. And it's wonderful that you know it's coming directly from him. That's a good credible source, by the way. Jesus knows a lot about Jesus and he knows a lot about God as well because he is God. Verse four, Paul goes on to say, now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. So again, he's sounding a warning spiritually. He says, beware of those who seek to impress with their presentation But yet they may ultimately misguide you with wrong information. He says, beware of those who deceive. Look what he says, using persuasive words. Some of your translations say fine-sounding arguments. And again, this is what the Gnostics were doing in that day. They were very scholarly in their representation. They gave the impression of being deeply spiritual in the ways they spoke. Persuasive and convincing using scholarly speech. Speaking in a way that sounded like you know very you know highly intelligent, more intelligent, to convince people of their credibility, but they were misleading people away from Christ. They were very persuasive. They were deeply scholarly. They had incredible you know uh, you know ideas that were seen very lofty, but they were leading people away from Christ and deceiving people spiritually. And and listen, ladies and gentlemen, just like sometimes. A, a crooked salesman may be very talented and some crooked salesman, I know we don't have any of those in here, but a crooked salesman sometimes is also very talented in their presentation and they have to be very talented in their presentation to sway you to follow their product or take their service or their path or whatever scam they got going. And so they're very persuasive in their words, convincing in their arguments. And let me just say, such is at times as well, the mark of spiritual cults. Such is also the mark at times of false teaching. Very persuasive, very dynamic in the presentation so that it can lure in to misguide people. Such is the attempt, you know, Satan is, is crafty so he presents things in a way that people would be lured in. And, and, and persuasive words can be an indicator that we're being persuaded towards what's wrong. Sometimes when someone's very persuasive and really trying to impress and convince, I start to wonder, why are you trying so hard to persuade me? Why are you trying so hard to convince me? Can't you just say the truth? Let me decide what I want to do with it afterwards. Just say the truth. And this is very critical, and I'm going to tell you why. Because sadly today, I believe, my personal conviction, in the modern church, many naive believers are becoming more concerned with presentation than they are spiritual content. And many naive believers are are, are so caught up in the presentation because it's such an entertainment-driven world that they deem if somebody is energetic, and charismatic, and dynamic, and, and a persuasive communicator, that that just deems they are spiritual. And I'm not saying those things are wrong if God's gifted someone. But dynamic, energetic, persuasive, charismatic does not deem somebody is spiritual. We have to be very, very careful. So many times I said that's where the emphasis is put on the presentation And nobody's checking, well, what about the content? Great presentation, but what's the spiritual content? That's the thing we should be primarily concerned about. Rule number one, just because somebody is persuasive doesn't mean they're right. If you raise children, you know that. Right, wait for it, wait for it. They're very persuasive. Two years old, they're very persuasive. They are great debaters, right? And And they're very persuasive doesn't mean they're right. And so the same thing spiritually, we have to be careful. Paul says, beware of these things, lest you be deceived. He goes on, verse five, for though I'm absent in the flesh, yet I'm with you in the spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. So Paul wanted them to know that though he wasn't with them in body, he says, my heart is there with you. I'm with you in spirit. And then he says in this verse here that he was blessed to hear some of the things they were doing quite well. He mentions two things in verse five that he was proud to see them maintaining as a mark of a, of a healthy church. He says, first of all, in verse five, one of the things he was pleased to see is that they were a church, notice, who functioned in an orderly way. They were a church that functioned in an orderly way. He says, I rejoice to see your good order. That term Paul uses their good order, is a military term. It spoke of the orderly array of a platoon of soldiers who functioned under their commanding officer and each one knew their role and fulfilled their responsibility uh, in a way that was connecting to the whole and what they did together. They were operating in an orderly manner. Each part did its share Working in unison, and they just functioned like a platoon of soldiers, like a well oiled machine. And just functioning orderly under the commanding officer, each person was doing their thing, and there was an atmosphere of organization and orderliness in the way they conducted themselves. That's, that's how Paul described how this church functioned. There was an atmosphere of orderliness. Each person knew what they were to do and there was just this beautiful order in the way they functioned. And again, the Bible tells us that our God is a God of order, which means that, that God is not a God of, of chaos or spastic, disorderly things. And so the operations of a local church, the church of the living God, should be that a local church functions in its ministry, in its worship life, in its activities, in a way that reflects the nature of the God that it worships a God of order, which means then that God has established, we read in the Bible, an order for how the church is to operate. God's established an order for leadership and how it's to function. God's established an order for how ministry should happen and, and how we should conduct ourselves in our relationships. You look at the life of Jesus, study his ministry. When Jesus did even miracles in ministry, feeding the 5,000, the multitudes, he did it in an an orderly way there was an order to the way the lord went about doing what he did and it was completely spiritual but yet there was an order to it as well it wasn't chaotic there was an order to it and in the same way god has established an order for how we are to worship and in the spirit and how worship is to happen or not happen in the assembly of believers there should be a good order even among the worship assembly 1 Corinthians 12 and 13 and 14 describe even the operations of the gifts of the Spirit and of the Spirit's ministry operating in the church. The Bible tells us there in those passages that God is not the author of confusion. It says, let all things be done decently and in order. A lot of times churches just take one half of that verse. Some churches just let all things be done. That's not a good idea. Other churches are so concerned about everything being so decent and in order they don't let all things be done they're, not, they're afraid to have any openness to just let the Holy Spirit at times you know, be at work among his people listen ladies and gentlemen in the assembly of believers things don't have to be rigid they don't have to be inflexible but there should be an orderliness among how the Holy Spirit's working among us. There can be flexibility in what happens as we listen to the Lord. There can be a, you know, a variety of, of activities and what happens in the midst of a worship service from this meeting to the next meeting and being open maybe to what the Lord wants to do in that meeting. We certainly try and continue to be open to that in our Wednesday evening time of worship at the end of the Bible study. But yet that can be done while still maintaining order doesn't have to get chaotic and and weird and and out of control it can be done in an orderly way where it's still beautiful and harmonious because God is a god of order and his spirit is not going to do something disorderly and and awkward and and weird again the, the holy spirit in the bible is represented as a dove not a duck quack quack you know and sometimes that kind of gets confused for god's people a dove peaceful beautiful harmonious and Paul says, I'm, I'm rejoicing to see the good order among you. As well as he said, I'm also proud to see how devoted you are in your commitment to Christ. He mentions in verse five, the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. That is, they felt held a firm, stable commitment to the person of Jesus Christ. They were holding the line, though there was a lot of things that were trying to pull them away from Christ. Paul says, I'm really proud to see you are steadfastly committed to Christ in Christ alone. That he is the central part of who you are as a church and as a group of people. They were remaining solid in their belief towards the fundamental doctrines of Christ. They were steadfast in those things. They didn't let themselves be pulled away. They were holding the line, though there were attempts to pull people away from Jesus and into other things. Paul says, I rejoice to see you doing that. And boys, a family of believers, may we remain solid in our steadfast commitment to Christ and to the doctrines that accord with Christ that the Bible has given to us. Not allow ourselves to be drawn away from the Lord, but be faithful in our commitment to Jesus. Well, Paul goes on to encourage spiritual continuance and growth. Verse six, he says, as you therefore have received, he says, Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as you've been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. So he gives an exhortation here to continue onward in our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. You see what he says in the text there in verse 6 with me? He says regarding Jesus, as you have received him, that is in the same way that you received him, now continue to walk in him. Now, when the Bible speaks of receiving Christ Jesus, the Lord, uh, it's a reference to salvation, no doubt, how we initially receive Jesus as the Savior for our sins so that we can be forgiven, and we receive Jesus as the Lord of our life, that we let him take over rulership as he was not at one time perhaps leading us and ruling us in our life. That is how a relationship with the Lord begins. The Bible says we must receive jesus to as many as receives him the bible says he gives the right the power to become children of god so that's how the spiritual life begins we receive jesus his forgiveness for our sins we receive his holy spirit into our life to become a child of god we receive him as the lord over our life but how did we do that was it complicated no it was by simple trust right it was with childlike faith So Paul says, listen, in the same way it was simplistic, in the simplicity that you first received Jesus as Lord, he says, now in that same simplicity, just walk in him. Just keep walking in that simplicity to continue in a relationship by keeping it simple, not complicating things. Isn't it true, if you've been walking with the Lord for any time, there's always a danger of complicating what spiritual life is supposed to be. We start out so simplistic. We get saved and we just love the Lord and we're walking with Him and we got the basics. And before we know it, we, we slowly develop these little spiritual rules and kind of regulations that we develop. And our own little personal set of lists of what we should do and shouldn't do and what's spiritual and maybe even in good intention. But before we know it, we've, we've got this crazy complicated Christian life. And it's almost becoming burdensome and we'll begin to lose this love and personal intimacy with Jesus. And instead of living by faith, we're finding ourselves trying to follow all these rules and, and things that we've created for what it means to be a Christian or to be a good Christian in some way. And, and the Lord is saying to us here in verse 6, keep it simple. Keep it simple. In the same way that you receive Jesus, in simplicity, He's saying, now walk in him in simplicity. Don't complicate the spiritual life. He's saying, just love Jesus, live for him in grateful submission. But notice, after we receive him, that's not the end. The Bible does say, once you receive him, we are to walk in him. A lot of times, people think, "Well, yeah, I received Jesus. Who hasn't had that conversation with somebody before? We, well, yeah, I received Jesus. I prayed that prayer at a church service, or I I, that, I went forward at a you know one of those crusades. I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I received Jesus, right?" But that was the starting gun. That, that'd be like me saying to my wife, "I mean, I married you. I did. I said all those things at the altar. Everybody watched. I mean, yeah, I'm living by myself and doing what I want. And I mean, but but I'm I'm married. Will you get married to live married? Will you receive Jesus to live with Jesus, to walk with Jesus, to keep going forward with Jesus and?" The word walk pr- implies progress, continuance. <clears throat> it implies taking steps in a direction. And this is the metaphor that God gives to us of what a relationship with the Lord looks like, that we walk with Jesus. And he describes, I think in verse 7, some of what that progress and continuing forward should look like. In an attempt to become established in our faith in the Lord, he says, first of all, verse 7, we should be seeking to be rooted in him rooted in jesus uh, there's a metaphor there it's an agricultural term when a tree or plant is rooted it sends down roots right uh, and it sends down roots to draw nourishment to what would help it be healthy and fruitful spiritually that's what the roots do they draw from the source and roots also give establishment of stability and strength of something's existence so it's not blown away or knocked over. And this is the metaphor here, the idea of becoming rooted in Christ, putting down deep roots into your relationship with Jesus so that you can draw from Jesus as you continue to walk through them, draw from Jesus everything you need for your spiritual life. That you draw from Jesus what you need to remain healthy spiritually and that you're drawing from a root system you've sunk into your relationship with the Lord and that you establish as well stability and strength in your commitment to Jesus. You're rooted in the Lord. You're, you're really deeply rooted in the Lord and that you're walking forward becoming more rooted. So why? So you're not easily swayed and uprooted as a Christian where just the tiniest little wind blows you off course and then you're back, you know, living in the world and, and kind of walking, that you're rooted in the Lord. You're a stable person and, and you're, you're seeking to be stable for the Lord. And he says as well, verse seven, that you would seek to be built up. And that's an architectural term. The idea of once you're on a foundation, you keep building and Jesus is the foundation and that we seek to keep being built up in the Lord, and the things of the Lord. Jude 20 says, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. Again, that we would be stable and useful to the Lord. Good thing to ask yourself this morning as a Christian, what are you doing right now practically in your spiritual life to make sure that you are staying rooted in Christ? I'll tell you one thing. You're doing it this morning. You're in the body of Christ. As Christians, one of the ways that we keep ourselves rooted in Christ is we need to send down root systems with a, a, a local family of believers. Too often, that's why believers struggle, is because they, they never get rooted and let their roots become all intertwined with a family of Christians where they're continuously receiving encouragement and edification and accountability. They're always uprooting and uprooting and uprooting and uprooting and uprooting. And uproot and uproot and why is that plant never fruitful? Well, because you move it all the time. you, you got to be rooted. We need to be rooted in in things like seeking the Lord daily and drawing from His Word and letting Him speak to us what we need to nourish our soul. and, And again, what things are you doing to make sure you're being built up spiritually? We need to be built up in the Lord. There are things that we need to, perhaps at times, readjust our priorities to say, Lord, I need to invest in things that are making sure I'm being built up spiritually. Paul said, if you want to mature and continue in Him, you need to be rooted, he says, built up so you can be established in the faith. Verse 80 then sounds another warning. He says, beware as well, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy or empty deceit. According to the tradition of men, and not according to the according to the basic principles of the world and not according to Christ. So again, another warning issued, beware. Here it's of human ideas and practices that are not based and found in the truth of what it means to really follow Christ. And here he warns against this, saying if you fall prey to embracing and observing things that are just ideas of men and basic principles drawn from the secular world, He says those things can begin to cheat you out of a healthy, proper relationship with Jesus Christ. And here he particularly warns against a few things. He warns against philosophy and empty deceit. That is, philosophical ideas. Again, these higher minds from higher institutions, maybe, or scholarly minds. Very smart, deeply intelligent they can wax philosophical they develop their concepts about life and the right way to reason things but typically so often ladies and gentlemen especially in our modern culture a lot of those things are just rooted in humanism which is just the worship of self and making self the centrality of this world and everything is about self and not about God and we look to self and we solve problems by self And today, let me just say, my personal conviction, I think what's mentioned in verse 8 there, being cheated through philosophy and things according to the tradition of men and the basic principles of this world, not according to Christ, a lot of that, be very careful, is what ends up showing up in secular psychology. And you have to be very careful. He says, beware, because these things can begin to cheat you of what God wants for your life spiritually. He also mentions, verse 8, the traditions of men. And isn't it amazing how many traditions get established in the way that we live, our families? I mean, I mean just think of our own lives. How tightly as well we cling to observing certain things that are essential. You know, hey, this is just what I was taught growing up. Or that that's the way we always did it. This is how you do it. And again, whether it's how you make the Thanksgiving meal or what you do on Christmas, or again, maybe even what religious traditions this is what I learned. And so we cling to it with a death grip because it just becomes a tradition and we're so used to observing it, uh, we hold on to it. But listen, even many religious traditions kept among churches have no biblical basis. They're just traditions of men. There's no biblical basis to them. And not all traditions are wrong unless those traditions interfere with a relationship with Christ. And that can happen where a tradition interferes. With what the Word of God says or what would be right spiritually. Often he says these things are according to the basic principles of this world. That is, they're just worldly human ideas that people keep that aren't necessarily in accordance with what it means to really live for Christ. And so he's warning here. He's saying, be careful because some people's religious ideas to this day that they hold on to actually cheat and hinder a person from having a relationship with Jesus Christ I assure you in this room there are people who were once there in their life and I assure you there are lots of people multitudes of people that there is some religious tradition or way or upbringing that they hold on to that so tightly that that actually cheats them and robs them from having a real genuine relationship with Jesus Christ and it actually gets in the way and here the Bible is saying don't let that happen choose Jesus Choose Jesus, not tradition. Don't let those things misguide you. Jesus is what you need. And I think, of course, regarding Jesus, he therefore then says, verse 9 and 10, for in him, in Jesus, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Again, we've already talked about this, another reference to Jesus, that Jesus in the body of flesh was God dwelling among us all the attributes of god of deity were dwelling in the life of jesus christ in his humanity that god who was fully divine took a second nature a human nature to himself in the person of jesus christ and that in jesus everything necessary he was fully sufficient and complete therefore to be savior and lord because in him dwell all the fullness of god and what was divine and then he then says for us who know jesus verse ten, and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power so jesus being the ruler of all principality and power the lord of all is therefore totally sufficient to give us all we need for spiritual life he's complete all the fullness of god is in him so if he's in our life guess what He says, verse 10 there, I have this underlined. you should in your Bible too, you are complete in him. You are not lacking anything that you need for spiritual life if you have Christ. Everything that you need, you are fully equipped with, everything you need to live a healthy, fruitful, successful, dynamic Christian life is already present in you. If you have Jesus Christ in the presence of the Lord living in your life, because Jesus is sufficient. Everything necessary. There's nothing you lack, Christian. All you need is at your disposal to live exactly as God intends. Jesus is sufficient. You're complete in Him. You're not incomplete spiritually. You're not lacking something uh, as a Christian. You're not lacking something another Christian has. And sometimes we kind of live like that. We think, man, I mean, I'm just, I'm missing something. I mean, they must have the key. He must have the key. That's why why he's living a victorious, fruitful Christian. He found the key. Or, you know, she found the key. Or, I mean, what book did you read, right? I mean, that's how Christian, this is horrible. That's how a lot of Christian books sell. I know that's horrible for people who are Christian authors, so make sure you edit that off of that so nobody comes and attacks me or sues me. But really, it's kind of that idea of like, well, I mean, you get this one. This is the key. The five power principles victory over sin. Listen, here's the five power principles. This and Jesus Christ, the Spirit of the Lord living inside of you. You're not missing anything at all. Many believers struggle and live on a lower standard spiritually simply because they don't realize all the spiritual resources that are at their disposal that have been given to them in the sufficiency of Jesus, that they're all freely available. We just need to yield to them. We need to just recognize them and walk in them. And realize everything that I need. There are many people that live their lives as an incomplete person, missing and lacking something. And so, therefore, look around in our world, ladies and gentlemen. There are so many people that are always on the search because they feel so incomplete as a human being. Right? We know people. They just start to feel so incomplete, and they're always searching, searching, searching because they feel so incomplete. But listen, he says you're complete in Christ. In some ways, if somebody's not yet a true follower of Jesus Christ, they're going to feel incomplete because you become complete in Christ. That's the incompleteness. They don't need this. Well, I need, if I could just get this or this promotion or that experience or live here or live there or that relation. Listen, no. You want to be complete? Accept Christ because Christ will complete the need in your life. He'll be the sufficiency, the fullness. That's what makes a person complete. Our personal completeness can only be realized in an experience with Jesus. And for those of us who know the Lord, don't ever think just because something's still missing from your life right now that you lack something and let yourself believe, well, when this happens, I'll finally be complete. God's perspective is you're already complete you are complete. You're not deficient. You're not lacking. And I'll tell you something, if you want something to feel more complete, more Jesus. More Jesus will make you experience more completeness in your soul. Let's stand together. Let's pray.